Hey everybody, it's Matthew and this is Slee Ricketts. Uh, it's going to be a short one this week. It is the 11th hour. It is way past the 11th hour. Uh, it's been a long week. Uh, did a lot of driving out uh, west to the mountains. I, I just, I thought instead of trying to, um, instead of either missing a week or scrambling to piece together a proper episode. I just thought I would read through a few articles that have been on my mind and just sort of talk out some of uh, some of my thoughts on them. I do still have incoherence on the brain, so that's mostly what I'm going to be addressing. First, though, uh, uh, thank you again to everybody who uh, left uh, ratings or reviews for the show. A couple of new ones this week. I, I really appreciate it. Um, Apple Podcasts is usually the place to go to do that. Uh, or uh, just recommend the show to somebody you think would like it. Uh, taking just a moment to do that makes a difference. Uh, also, do write in to me with any thoughts, comments, suggestions, questions at sleericketts at gmail.com. I got a great note from Coleman this week in response to Ethan's question that I mentioned before. Ethan had written asking for advice for, uh, for mastering a poetic form, metrical form, as someone who had not received a lot of training in school. And Coleman's suggestion was to memorize poems. I could not agree more. I've found for reading and writing poems broadly, uh, apart from you know formal or otherwise, there's really nothing more valuable than pure memorization. Again, memorize, don't memorize everything. <laughs> memorize poems that you love. Memorize poems that you think are great poems. And it will, nothing will, will, will give you a better understanding. Well, I don't know if nothing will, but there's probably no one thing you could do that will help you better understand the fabric of a poem than uh, simply memorizing it. He even mentions uh, the struggling with remembering whether a poem used the word which or that in a particular line. I, I had exactly the same experience memorizing to his coy mistress. And I think a lot of the witches and nats in that poem are pretty arbitrary. That is, there's not really a good specific reason that Marvell is, is choosing one or the other, but just having to think back and remember and to, to ask yourself why it is the way it is, is uh, would just give you a far more intimate understanding of how a poem gets put together than just about anything else. So uh, I, I wholeheartedly endorse Coleman's recommendation. He offers a caveat. I'm just going to read from his email here. If I start to fall into the trap of thinking of poems I'm reading as fodder for my own writing, the whole thing becomes miserable. Memorizing poems is worthwhile first and foremost because it helps me get more out of the poems. Any positive effect on my own ability to write is a nice side benefit. Yeah, I, th I think that's true. I, I would say that probably the biggest danger with reading poems for fodder is in finding a poet whose voice is too infectious. I think Larkin is one of these. I have to be careful about reading Larkin, I remember um, Alice McDermott once said that she really can't read Flannery O'Connor anymore, apart from you know, to teach the stories because it's so 
it's such a powerful voice and it's a voice that is sympathetic enough to her own, I think is the key. So yeah, there are probably some poets that as you, uh, as you, the more you write, the more you will get to sense that they may be great influences and great uh, models, but maybe you need to spend some time away from them. Generally speaking though, absolutely memorized poems. Uh, and uh, I should say Coleman also uh, reiterates the the recommendation to read Timothy Steele's All the Funds and How You Say a Thing and to participate in Eratosphere. So thank you very much, Coleman. I greatly appreciate it. I also wanted to follow up quickly on last week's episode about MFAs because I read a pretty good little essay by Anne Helen Peterson this week called The Master's Trap. It appeared in her Substack, which I, I don't subscribe to, but I... I saw a link to it somewhere and I'm glad I read it. It is about a specific kind of master's program, which she calls a predatory master's program. So obviously for-profit colleges have very justly earned a, a bad reputation in the last few years. Her point is that there are plenty of non-profit colleges that do pretty close to the same thing as some of the more infamous uh, there's some nonprofit colleges that do pretty much the same thing as, as the, the, the more infamous for-profit colleges. The specific kind of program she's talking about, and it does apply to writing. I know that there is an example of it at the school where I got my MFA, or the first school where I got my MFA. This is a program that to which most people do not apply directly, but people will apply to another more prestigious program in the same uh, school at the same university and then receive a rejection along with an offer of acceptance to this other often one or two year master's program and it's you know at a prestigious university and it is a master's and it seems like oh well, this would be a great way to, to this will be a great stepping stone to the next the next uh, achievement in academia um, often it is simply a shameless moneymaker for the university. There was, so to clarify, there was an MFA program at my college that was fully funded. And then there was also a very expensive master's program, also in writing, also in creative writing, that, put, that had a, a very open admissions and was basically a moneymaker for the university. So, so her... Her uh, essay is about these degrees in several different fields, not just writing. Uh, but then she also does does allude again to um, to MFAs. So once again, if you have to pay for an MFA in the arts, rather it's all MFAs. If you have to pay for an MFA, don't do it. I will put a link to the article in the show notes because I think it's worth reading. Incidentally, probably going to be real stripped down show notes this week because I'm, I'm slapping this all together at the last fucking minute. So I, I read a few little sort of silly articles that all seem to address the same question. So I am really, I am still really wrestling with this problem of coherence and incoherence in poetry. And I do think there's a, there's a thing there that is more than just taste, that is more than just uh, a, a, as an Iserian degree of patience. 
what all three of these articles had in common was an explanation of incoherence in poetry that was fundamentally self-serving, that is serving the person speaking about it, which in one case was the poet, but there's a, there's a little distinction I want to offer. So I'll start with the dumbest of the three. This is Paul Legault's or Legault's article, How John Ashbery Thinks, Reading the Collages of a Great Poet. This appeared in LitHub. Uh, unsurprisingly, LitHub, boy, just just relentlessly uh, silly and dizzyingly hyper-specific topics for articles. I, uh, God bless Emily Temple and all of her uh, uh, entertainingly ludicrous listicles, but man, LitHub, I can't remember, was it always this boring or has it gotten that way? Anyway, Paula Goh's article is uh, a pseudo memoir about uh, you know how I met John Ashbery's poems <laughs> more or less, and he he describes falling in love with Ashbery really exclusively because the social scene that Ashbery belonged to was attractive. That's understandable, of course. One gets that, especially as a college kid. But his comprehension of Ashbury's poetry, his attraction to it, his his appreciation for it seems truly never to have gone beyond that undergraduate desire for inclusion. So the occasion for Legault's article, if you can call it an article or essay, is a the the new availability of some original John Ashbery collages which are mostly sort of drab landscape paintings with uh, popular early 20th century cartoon characters pasted over them more or less at random. They are, they are not good. I mean, collage can be an interesting medium. A lot of video editing is collage. Music videos are basically all collage. I, you know, Matisse is collage. Uh, the, the, the wasteland is a sort of poetic collage. There's, there's a lot of potential to collage. I just, Matisse uses collage. Uh, he obviously he did also painted and, uh, drew, but these are just lazy junk. You know, it's, it's like, this is fine stuff. If you were fiddling around, I mean, it, the thing is like, it's not even like, it's not even like Picasso's doodles because he was fucking Picasso. I mean, Picasso's the wrong comparison, even for John Ashbery at his best in his poems. You know, this is like Jackson Pollock. It's like, it's not even Jackson Pollock's doodles. Jack, Jackson Pollock could really draw and John Ashbery, Ashbery can really write, but he can't make collages worth a fucking damn. So this is sort of like if you, if you found some dirty limericks that Jackson Pollock had scribbled at the bar one night uh, and treated them as real art. You, they might be an interesting keepsake, but they're probably not going to be any fucking good as poetry. Though they would, unlike these fucking collages, they would have the advantage of at least being dirty, which provides some interest. This is just the dumbest of dumb, lazy, boring cartoon shit I've ever seen. There's a picture of Napoleon, I think, with with a smiling dog in boots pasted over it. I mean, it is, it is like the, the lowest level of hard copy memes sans 
hilarious caption. And this is truly stupid shit. But uh, Legault is enraptured. Here, this is, this is, um, he says, take Popeye steps out for Joe Brainerd, for instance. This is the name of the busiest and most confusing of the dumb nonsense collages. Uh, here's Legault again. I don't know why this is for his friend Joe, who died of AIDS-induced pneumonia in 1994, even though Ashbery made this collage in 2016. Of course, there's Joe Brainerd's Nancy book, full of his own pop updates of another classic comic. But anyhow, isn't everything we do for our friends? I guess you could say it speaks the same language they made together. Like how the New York School of Poetry was just some friends. Like how Donald Allen edited John Ashbery, Kenneth Koch, Frank O'Hara, Barbara Guest, and James Schuyler together in his New American Poetry Anthology. He called them friends. They were. In the same anthology, Amiri Baraka, formerly known as Leroy, Leroy Jones, wrote, writes, My poetry is whatever I think I am. I can be anything I can be. And I can be anything I can. Maybe everyone can be what they think. What the fuck is he talking about? This is gibber. Here, here, here's how he goes on in this cutesy faux uh, dialogue. All caps, nobody, colon, blank. Me, colon, why do poets make collage? I guess the same reason they make poetry. Is it possible to read an Ashbury poem now and have it be about me? Is that the test of a perfect pop song? Jesus fucking Christ, this is absurd. I mean, this guy, it's like, this guy had a perfectly understandable 18-year-old fantasy about being friends with some famous poets, and it's like he truly never even woke up from that daydream. I mean, it's, this is absolutely preposterous. And then, and then, and then, the article, after... Uh, it, after a, a ending on an excerpt, or no, after ending on a a poem called "Evenness and Double Runs," which is just some some jumbled gobbledygook. I mean, it's not even like a a a, a sparkling, uh, sizzling, tidy little quirky John Ashbery delight. It's just some stuff. It's just some stuff. So he ends on just some stuff. Uh, Bees max out at 33 miles per hour. I've driven faster but never flown. How to continue after all this loss? Is that a question a poem can answer? Fuel dropped into water. I guess, honestly, the way this is formatted, I can't even tell if how much of this is poem and how much of this is Paul Legault having a fucking stroke on LitHub Live. And then, after all of this absolute bullshit, we get a an advertisement for, any guesses? Platform is a new company for discovering and buying art online. It's an advertisement for the people auctioning off the originals of Ashbery's shitty fucking collages. This is... The only way this could get more infuriating is if you read Paul Legault's biography, which lists his many, many books that he's published. What appears to be the case, though... Is that, is that apart from worshiping John Ashbery and uh, fronting for faceless internet corporations, uh, Paul Legault's career mostly consists of responding to major works of literature by writing sequels that absolutely nobody asked for. He wrote, he wrote The Emily Dickinson Reader, an English-to-English -English translation of the complete poems of Emily Dickinson. Because Emily Dickinson is so opaque, 
because she because she's so indirect because she she doesn't cut to the core because she she's not memorable enough. I mean, for fuck's sake, like what what justification could you possibly have for translating of all poets, Emily Dickinson, Jesus Christ, translate Hurt Crane if you're going to translate somebody, uh, self portrait in a convex mirror too. Self portrait in a convex mirror is a great poem and it's a good collection and nobody needed Paul Legault to write self portrait in a convex mirror too, as well as lunch poems too. <laughs> in answer to uh, poor poor old Franco Harris famous book. And then, and then, oh God, thankfully he didn't at least write all of this, but he also, this is the last line of his bio, he also co-edited the sonnets, translating and rewriting Shakespeare. Why? 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 I mean, if you want to rewrite or revise or translate or, or update a, a particular poem because you were moved to do so, great, wonderful, do it. But what is this project? This is ridiculous. I've, uh, so uh, John McCord is a pretty smart guy. Brief tangent, but uh, on a podcast a while ago, he 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 announced that it was high time that all of Shakespeare's plays be translated into modern English. And his point was that Shakespeare's English is a little distant. It's a little hard to access for many of us. It's a little less immediate for us than modern English dialogue would be, which, fine, fair enough, okay, uh, that he's really fucking good is, <laughs> you know, maybe maybe beside the point, but, uh, but more importantly, they should all be translated into modern English by whom? I mean, this is this ridiculous idea that, like, there should be uh, some, I, I don't know, a, a branch of the government dedicated to, to updating Shakespeare's plays? I mean, this is this the sonnets pro why let let people write fucking poems that individually matter to them here you know all right if you're publishing poems i mentioned last week Elliot's advice that, that we should write less and i do think publish less is really the truer imperative if you are publishing poems you should at least think that the poems you are publishing are really good if you are publishing a poem and you yourself think, that's eh, not great, but it's I can get it published, then don't publish it. Please stop. If Paula Go had followed that advice, he would not have published, I think, a word. But my, my point about his absolutely maddening and uh, utterly harebrained article is that for him, incoherence in Ashbury's dumbass collages as well as in his very certainly not dumb <laughs> highly accomplished highly controlled extremely impressive if not exactly my cup of fucking tea poetry his response to incoherence in both of these media is an excited willingness to insert his own interpretation he sees the incoherence as a, a, an opening because really it's all about friendship, right? Really, it's all about connection. It's all about being part of the group. It's all about belonging. And so if, uh, as you know, Isaiah goes to great lengths in his article to say that, you know, it's really important for the reader to take part in creating the, the synthesized literary phenomenon and I think people like Legault take incoherence as a as a, a kind of an open door to say, oh great, there's plenty of room for me to join in and belong to something. 
which is understandable, especially in a teenage college student, but is not a very good account of poetry. And I don't think it particularly leads to good poetry, good criticism, or if I'm being honest, even good friendship. So enough of that utter hogwash. Uh, the next article I wanted to quickly talk about was one by celebrated critic and Daffy nincompoop, Eliza Gabbard. Eliza Gabbard is the poetry columnist for New York Times. She wrote a column, she wrote a column called For Three Poets Who Embrace Excess, The Mess is the Message. I just read this recently, but it was published about a year ago. The Legault one came out, I think like this week. Yeah, or no, like uh, a couple weeks ago. So back to, to uh, Gabbert. Gabbert writes sort of a, a, a column that's kind of a, a series of mini reviews of three new books of poetry. And she, she starts off by talking about how a lot of the new galleys that she's receiving as a as a, a famed critic who's by the way a terrible taste but here she she talks mostly or she talks to, to start out with here to start out with she talks about how big all of the new books she's receiving are they take up a lot more space on her shelf and she she goes on to say many of these recent books are also in one way or another messy unruly sloppy mixing prose and verse and other media images and doodles and she, she gives a few examples, and then she she cites an earlier form of poetry that's, thank God, gone out of style. Even when making use of form, these books are informal, full of intentional errors. They're sometimes tacky or offensive, or in the words of Gary Sullivan's Flarf Manifesto, which described the deliberately bad genre of Flarf that emerged in the early 2000s, wrong, un-PC, out of control, not okay. Flarf is not really worth looking up, but it was a, a brief fad that coincided, I think, with the 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 initial rise to fame of a, a very non-flarfy Kenneth Goldsmith. Very bad, but very non-flarfy uh, conceptual poet Kenneth Goldsmith. The flarf was a was a genre of, of as she says, deliberate, deliberately bad poetry. A lot of it was put together by uh, semi-randomly compiling Google language from Google search results. So that that was Flarf. It really, I, I never saw a Flarf poem that stuck in my memory at all. Really. I, mean, I mean, I wrote a thing about Flarf a little while ago and I just tr trying to find poems to look up. It's so drearily stupid and bland and empty but uh th these these books are not for the most part she says that, that one of them is has a flarfy quality They're, these are not for the most part flarfy books i i'll say i have not read the three books she reviews and and i really don't even want to comment on them as books they all sound interesting in some ways maybe a little self-indulgent in others they're all very long and as she says very messy by far the most interesting review and and probably the most interesting book if i'm being well ba just based on my own experience is, is uh joel mcsweeney's toxicon and arachne i've not read this one i have i wrote a long thing about mcsweeney a while ago and and read a lot of her work for that i it's very much not to my taste but it is 
Uh, and, and she publishes way, 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 way too much. Way too much. But she she takes the work absolutely seriously without without any question. And, and it is usually, even if it's not fun to read or it's not what I would like to read, it is at least interesting. And not interesting just because it's chaotic. So uh, she, she talks about uh, Sweeney's faux typos. Uh, she says the, the one of McSweeney's tricks is the faux typo, the little mistake that is so much more apparent in a poem than it would be in prose since our attention to individual words is heightened. This is something uh, Kevin Young also uh, has been doing for, for quite a while in, um, I think most memorably in Jelly Roll. She goes on to say, these typos are like chips in the wallpaper of controlled reality. They remind me of a psycholinguistic study that showed people could still read a text when the letters in each word were out of order. Like this, as one science writer illustrated, and then uh, she has a, an interestingly jumbled sentence that, that reads, though it is not spelled this way, the only important thing is that the first and last letter are in the right place. Her interpretation of this odd study is, it suggests that order correctness is fake. What? That's your conclusion? It suggests that we are pretty good at recognizing patterns. And a lot of our, a lot of the practice of reading is, is rote and is based on, rather than a clean left to right conveyor belt of Turing machine processing, we sort of sweep our eyes around and, and pick up shapes and patterns broadly. And yeah, the first and last letters are, are a big part of that. So no, I mean, it, it, it suggests that sort of our reading our manner of, of visually processing language is maybe slightly different than we might have intuited, but it certainly doesn't suggest that order correctness is fake. And yet I think this is very much to, uh, this very much serves Gabbert's purposes. She, she, she says about another book, she says, I like books that feel notebooky as if I were transgressing the author's private property. She says that in another um, book, the poet has translated another person's Korean speech into English but not into self-consciously artful poetry. As if to say, I cannot speak for him. So here, Choi admits to being a compulsive translator, but some things cannot be translated or even spoken. The scribbles stand in for the unspeakable. <sighs> These long unruly books do not try to conceal their excess, or perhaps they say our rage and grief are not in excess. It's excess as a corrective. I'm sure, again, I'm sure that there's a lot of interesting stuff in these particular books, but what I see here is something I guess I have seen in a lot of other contexts many times before, which is that it behooves Gabbert to locate incoherence, that, that the promoting incoherence in poetry, whether or not it's actually there, promoting chaos, promoting mess, promoting scribbles in poetry is not just her taste. It's not just response to a fad. It is self-serving, right? It serves her interests. It flatters her because it makes her necessary as an interpreter, right? I was raised to sympathize always with Catholics over Protestants, but Jesus Christ, this is uh, it's making me feel like Martin fucking Luther. It is as if Matt Alyssa Gabbard is saying, you need me to intercede because the you can't you can't uh, you can't receive the truth directly, 
we get an even more galling example of this argument from beloved poet, poetic personality, and uh, man about town, Kava Akbar from Jesse Nathan's short interviews with poets, colon, Kava Akbar, which appeared in McSweeney's Internet Tendency just a two week or two ago. So these, uh, this is, uh, I believe, an example of the essay test homework assignment interview, but at least it seems to consist mostly of one longish question slash prompt followed by a rambling single answer by the poet. Uh, so, so it is, it is as advertised, blessedly short, uh, but uh, Nathan introduces his interview with a few paragraphs of startlingly arbitrary generalizations, uh, bizarre conclusions, and, and you know, mostly a sort of a series of uh, loftily phrased non sequiturs. Uh, really, I mean, the, 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 I'll, I'll read a little bit of it to give you a, a, a taste. I'm just going to read you the first paragraph because it's, you almost feel like you could, you could use this as a, as a word problem in a, a college introduction to logic class. This is Jesse Nathan, uh, his introduction to his interview with Kava Akbar. A self-critical element is flourishing in contemporary poetry. Many poets speak as if they feel that you, reader, won't trust them unless they make visible their own limitations, failings, and uglinesses. Partly, it's about managing expectations. This is not an age of heroes. Interesting interjection. And it's good sometimes, as Robert Haas has written, for poetry to disenchant, disintoxicate, as Auden has it. Partly, then, it's a response to the deepening cynicism of life under Republican capitalism. Republican is not capitalized there, and I'm not really sure what he means. I think he may not understand what Republican means when it's not capitalized. This is an age, after all, that's produced a book called The Hatred of Poetry. In an ugly world, a performance that's expressly aware of its performance. All right, quickly, uh, I think it's either a great point or a nonsensical point that he's making, and I truly can't tell which. If he means that the hatred of poetry is part of a response to deepening cynicism, the, the de you know, deepening cynicism of life under Republican capitalism, then I think he's, I think that's absolutely wrong. If he's saying that it is an example of deepening cynicism, totally right, 100%. The, 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 the hatred of poetry was a cash grab by uh, FSG to make money off of uh, Ben Lerner's hot, hot name, uh, at a time when he published a handful of longish uh, rambling essays in the Times Literary Supplement, and they, they just repackaged them, put out 80 pages of totally unedited garbage, uh, called it a book, and sold a lot of fucking copies because, part you know, among other things, they knew it would piss people off. So uh, mission accomplished. I'm glad to have contributed to that cause. So uh, absolutely cynical. Absolutely cynical. And uh, cynical in a, with, with a capitalist inflection. So just to... Uh, if, if, however, he thought this was somehow part of a true arts uh, shaking fist, raging against the, the dying of the light, then uh, he's as much of an idiot as he seems in the rest of this article. Uh, he, he goes on, In an ugly world, a performance that's expressly aware of its performance offers one route to beauty and one 
way to be aware is to call attention to the flaws in our facades. Not only the beauty of tearing away the mask, but the beauty of the dream of credibility. To hew this way is always political, but it's also mystical only once in a while. And it's at this crossroads where the mystical and the political cross that Kava Akbar writes. Now, you may have had the same experience I had. I, it's possible that all of that made perfect sense to you, but my experience was that he, he sort of uh, meandered through a vaguely coherent argument about uh, self-criticism in poetry, and then around, around the prepositional phrase, in an ugly world, it's as if Nathan dashed off the first half of this paragraph and then handed it over to a freshman comp class with instructions to piece together the rest of it, exquisite corpse style, one sentence at a time, adding maybe the stipulation that the last sentence contained the words Kaba Akbar. It is absolute critical filler. I mean, this is, this is like a, this is the, this has the level of intellectual substance and uh, cogency of a, a, of an artist statement at an MFA thesis show. It is not only the beauty of tearing away the mask, but the beauty of the dream of credibility to hew this way is always political but it's also mystical only once in a while i mean jesus and it's at this crossroads where the mystical and the political cross the kava akbar right so jesse nathan is merely incompetent as a writer i think he does say a few more hilariously poorly phrased things and i and i also think he doesn't know what the word epithet means based on how he uses it in many of the poems there's a period at the end of each line regardless of syntax Akbar has decoupled punctuation and syntax. He celebrates this as, I mean, again, he, I, the, I think I will give Nathan a pass, not because it's okay to write shitty criticism, but because I think he, he genuinely, genuinely has no agenda. Also mystique. He, he does not know what mystique means. Uh, I think he has no agenda though. I just think he's, he's desperately sweatily fumbling his way through this job at McSweeney's and trying not to get fired. So I, I wish him all the best. Godspeed, Jesse Nathan. Maybe just switch to a different beat. So he the question that he offers Akbar, that the, to which Akbar responds, is one about you know, how and whether poems can help us to live better lives. Akbar's response is at times as incoherent as Nathan's prompt but it is way cleverer, savvier, and more, by my lights, more insidious. So here's how he begins. Poetry is a spiritual technology. Given the meagerness of my instruments for apprehending existence, my body compromised by its mortality, my language compromised by its relentlessly violent history, poetry as a technology, has seemed to get me a bit closer than anything else. Barely. The way standing on a roof trying to grab the moon gets one a bit closer than standing on the floor. So he makes a point here about his own limitations, and, and by extension, all of our, you know, the limitations all of us 
have to deal with when it comes to understanding the truth. I'm looking out at the universe, perceiving reality, grappling with existence. And he says, man, we, we don't, it's hard. We don't have much to go with. He, he uses throughout the, uh, the, the, his response and, and in some of his poems, I would call, I would say opportunistically vague relationship to religion, whereby some of the power of relative humility, of uh, communal meaning, of uh, uh, tradition, of powerful symbol, of special jargon. He takes advantage of these things, but but it's always left very non-specific. And and one gets the idea that that in if one tried to nail down any actual practice or belief, it would be pretty hard to because I think I think really it's just sort of a religious flavor that that Akbar seems interested in. But here he he says he you know he speaks in somewhat religious terms about the limitations of the mortal mind and then he says poetry as a boy poetry as a technologist spiritual thing but god that just rubs me the wrong way but that that's fine that's fine he says poetry uh, seemed to get me a little closer than anything else uh, and then he he belittles even his poetry by saying it's it, it's as close it's much closer to the moon as you would get by standing on the roof rather than the floor which you know, if, if your if your goal really is to grab the moon, of course, it's not that it gets you a little closer; it gets you no closer to grabbing the moon. It, you do you you a hundred percent also do not grab the moon when standing on the roof. But then I think the so Nathan has spoken of of Akbar's poetry in the loftiest Vatic terms as almost a you know direct line to divine wisdom. Akbar's closing sentences on this question, I think reveal what's behind all of this performative humility. Because he, by the way, the long poem that Nathan praises uh, uh, at, at some length in his preamble and that appeared in its entirety in a long illustrated uh, edition in the New Yorker was Akbar's poem, The Palace which is it's not I, I will not say that it's all junk uh he 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 does know how to write a good line he has i think in this one really wonderful line he says art is where what we survive survives art is where what we survive survives which is really rhetorically skillful it's a, a little line of uh acephalic I am a pentameter and it's it's extremely efficient and in fact it it makes use of a what what in raw syntactical terms under normal circumstances would be incoherent collisions of words right survive survives as a pair of words coming one after another uh, very seldom appears in uh, in spoken or written English, uh, where what likewise, but he, he manages to piece all of these together in a way that conveys not just a clear denotation, but actually maybe something somewhat insightful and 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 true. I think about art. Art is where what we survive 
survives. I think that's a great line. But the thing is that uh, while Jesse Nathan says this is a poem that really rips, which, by the way, adjusting for, for, adjusting for generation, this is a poem that really rips is 100% the same as saying uh, this Grateful Dead song is really groovy, man. I mean, good Lord. Uh, but, you know, so I, what he might mean by that, which I guess is the, the, the equivalent to like this, it rocks, it slaps, it really bangs. Uh, it certainly does not do any of those things. It is, uh, it's again, it's like much of Akbar's poetry. It's a series of uh, sometimes juicy, sometimes uh, garbled non sequiturs and some repetitions along the way. Uh, and a, a sort of a vague circling around a theme. But again, the, I mean, the theme is America sucks. And and it, like in ways that are very accurate. Again, I, I'm not challenging his contention here. He, he certainly points to some really horrible problems that I, uh, I think he's right about. But it's not even a clear argument on that point. It's not a lyric evocation of an experience particularly. It is a bunch of uh, scraps pieced together. It is a kind of a collage. Here, let me read you an excerpt. To be an American is to be a scholar of opportunity. Opportunity costs. Every orange I eat disappears. The million peaches, plums, pears I could have eaten, but didn't. In heaven, opportunity costs. In her heaven, my mother grows peaches, plums, pears, and I eat them till I pass out and wake up in heaven. Wake up and eat some more. I couldn't dream of doing anything by halves. Whatever it is, I'll take the whole bouquet. Please and soon. Are you still listening? Every person I touch costs me ten million I'll never meet. Persons and persons, inside each a palace on fire, inside each Mick Jagger wearing a gorilla pelt coat covered in ostrich feathers. He calls it glamouflage. What's gone, but still seen? Question mark. And it might seem that if you had the context of what comes before and after that passage, you would it would all fall into place and you would understand it. I I suspect not. It's a series of arbitrarily juxtaposed lines, a little bit of free association, and and a handful of recurrent phrases. I won't even say themes. And then there are a few a few sentences he repeats throughout. There are no good kings, only beautiful palaces, which sounds pretty good. I, I don't quite know what it means. And even the one somewhat coherent parable about a king doesn't especially seem to, to bear out that, that claim. This is a bunch of uh, jumble with some really nice stuff mixed into it. Hello, this is oh, this is too. Hello, this is Kava speaking. I wanted to be Keats, but I've already lived four years too long. The oldest of old dumb poetry jokes. I mean, any any poet you've known in his twenties, somebody has made this joke within moments of that person's turning whatever age in his twenties every year. Hello, this is Keats speaking. It is absurd to say anything now, much less anything new. Hello, this is no one speaking. Hibiscus bloom, wet feathers, a tiny thumb of ash. Fine, all right, okay. It, 
To be an American is to be a hunter. To be American. Who can be American? To be American is to be? What? A hunter? A hunter who shoots only money. No, not money. Money. Okay. I mean, okay. Like, I even tried to give the, this the benefit of the doubt that there was a sort of a sense behind it. But, you know, if you're... It is fair game to say that America, to be an American is to value money most of all and to believe that anything that cannot be assigned a monetary value is worthless. That's fair. That's a totally valid criticism. But American a hunter who shoots only money? I mean, I guess you're pursuing the money. I guess money is the animal you want to kill. The, and the pears, peaches, and plums, and the oranges thing. I mean, it turns out all of those. I was assuming that this was like a like a like an almonds thing, where like growing a single orange uses so many millions of gallons of water that you could grow other. I assumed it was some sort of criticism in that sense, but uh, because because the numbers were so crazy, right? A million peaches and plums and pears for one orange. But of course, all it turns out, all of those fruits actually. Uh, cost much more per acre to grow than oranges. So I don't fucking know what he's talking about. And Nathan re re responds to that unsolved Rubik's Cube of uh, poorly edited bumper stickers with the claim that this is a prophecy. This is this is oracular truth that we're receiving. As I said, I, Akbar's response is more unsettling because Nathan, I think, is just either a flatterer or uh, a fool. Akbar is not, well, Akbar is a flatterer, if you've ever read any of his interviews, but he's no fool. Akbar closes his response with these sentences. If I could say in rhetorical language, like how we're speaking to each other now, what I actually mean when I say God, when I say grace, when I say dead, when I say justice, I wouldn't need the poems. I could just write brochures. The poems illuminate what my intelligence, my ego cannot, and that illumination indelibly guides my living. I have no idea how illumination could do anything indelibly, let alone guide a living, but I think that what, I think Akbar is actually doing three clever things here. When he says that if he could express in rhetorical language what these, these great and, and powerful and important words and concepts mean, he could just write brochures. What he does right there is very elegantly dismiss any poetry that might touch on any of these questions that makes more sense than his. It is just brochure writing. I don't know why, if you could write the received truth about God, you would write it in a brochure, but that is the term Akbar very savvily uses to, to write off any less incoherent poetry being written today. He also he disclaims all responsibility for accounting for any of this by saying, well, what do I know? 
I just I I just receive the muse's words. I just record what the what the god says to me. I you know I just I take the angel Gabriel's words in my ear and I and I scribble down whatever or I, I repeat them to my to my friends who scribble them down. He's saying you know I I I'm not coming up with this stuff. I don't know what can I say, which which makes his job much much easier. And then of course at the same time while doing both of these things by you know with this I think really skillful use of jujitsu like humility. He, of course, endorses Nathan's assessment that this is some sort of revealed truth. This is some sort of uh, a, a deep insight. The incoherence flatters not just the critic that we need to interpret for us. It, it flatters not just the delusional fanboy slash corporate shill who wants to feel like he belongs, like he wants to feel like there's a place for him in the text. But it definitely flatters the incoherent poet who, like Akbar, is able to lay claim to uh, speaking in tongues effectively. And, you know, I've, I've seen the speaking in tongues move before. I've seen the, the faux oracular move before. I think what's a little new to me is this and it's what Nathan does sniff out a little bit, that if there's one thing Nathan, if there's one insight Nathan has, it's that very first sentence. A self-critical element is flourishing in contemporary poetry. We are all, of course, very familiar with the just reflexive, obligatory, uh, 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 privilege disclaimers uh, that, that almost everybody of any description in a particular social class today uses to begin even the smallest of public statements just as a matter of, uh, of adherence to a, a, a cultural norm. I don't, want to, I don't want to speak good or ill of that custom, but, but that is, of course, what we are all very familiar with. But I think what Akbar picks up on is that this fad for uh, self-deprecation is actually very useful to him because it allows him to step back from having to account for any of the jumbled gobbledygook that he puts out as poetry. And, and at the same time, it, it only reaffirms that what he is writing is in fact a great and deep truth that he gets to be, he gets to be sort of both, both God and Oracle with this device. So I am, uh, again, Kava Akbar is not a total fraud. He is, he is talented. He is, I think, you know, socially and conversationally talented far more than poetically, but he, but he, he does have a knack for language, for image. I, I do think though that he is a partial fraud and boy, in my case, the poems go out ahead of me. The poems go out ahead of me. Whew. I mean, if that is not a divining rod, if that is not snake oil, if that is not the Duke and the Dauphin just pitching their, their highfalutin con game, I, I don't know what is. It is, uh, as I said, impressive and depressing. But with that, it is pretty fucking late. I still need to edit all this and 
put together some sort of show notes. I may, all right, one moment. All right, so I'm just gonna quickly read, I won't say much about it, but I'm gonna read a poem here since I didn't read one last week. And this is one I've, I've, I've liked for a long time. Uh, in 1995, uh, the poet Jane Kenyon died. She was married to the, the much, much older and much better known poet Donald Hall. After her death, she died of cancer. After her death, he wrote a book called Without, which is a pretty moving book. I, I don't think that as a... I, I think that it has some power as a collection, really as a sort of a memoir in verse. I think very few if any, of the individual poems from it pulled out of context uh, really stand up. I think they, they may be a little bit like those uh, underwater animals that, that, can't, that can't support their own bodies uh, out of the water. But there is the, the title poem, which is a little different from all the others. It is, it is written in, with no punctuation, uh, no capitalization and uh, very few clearly defined sentences, but it is a kind of a litany of absence. The, there's a practice I remember hearing about in college of certain Hindu sages who would pursue, they, they would try to get a closer understanding of God by turning to every single thing in the universe that they could identify, which of course was, you know, was composed of Maya, the great veil of illusion. Uh, but they, they would turn to every individual thing in the universe and say, nyeri nyeri, which uh, I seem to remember is uh, the word in, in um, Pali or, or maybe Hindi for uh, for not yet, not sorry, not this, not this. They would essentially look around at everything and identify God by saying God is not this, God is not this. And, and this poem does something similar. It is a a sort of um, a catalog or a almost a, an anti-blazon. It is it it identifies the the outline of. Uh, his dead wife's absence. And I think it's pretty affecting. Uh, I don't know. I, I'll, I'm going to read it. And, and with that little preamble, I probably won't say much else. But I, I think it's a pretty, I find it to be a pretty affecting poem. It may be that you need that context. But if that's true, then now you have it. So this is Without by Donald Hall. We lived in a small island stone nation without color, under gray clouds and wind, distant, the unlimited ocean acute, lymphoblastic leukemia, without seagulls or palm trees, without vegetation or animal life, only barnacles and lead-colored moss that darkened when months did, hours, days, weeks, months, weeks, days, hours, the year endured without punctuation. February, without ice, winter, sleet, snow melted, recovered, but nothing without thaw, although cold streams hurtled, no snowdrop or crocus rose, no yellow, no red leaves of maple without October. No spring, no summer, no autumn, no winter. No rain, no peony, thunder, no wood thrush. The book was a thousand pages without commas, 
without mice, oak leaves, windstorms, no castles, no plazas, no flags, no parrots, without carnival or the procession of relics, intolerable, without brackets or colons, silence without color, sound without smell, without apples, without pork to rupture, gnash, unpunctuated without churches, uninterrupted, no orioles, ginger, noses, no opera, no Without fingers, daffodils, cheekbones, the body was a nation, a tribe dug into stone, assaulted, white blood broken to shards, provinces invaded, bombed, shot, shelled, artillery, sniper fire, helicopter, gunship, grenade, burning, murder, landmine, starvation. The ceasefire lasted 48 hours, then a shell exploded in a market. Pain, vomit, neuropathy, morphine, nightmare. Confusion, the rack, terror, the vice. Vincristine, Aracy, Cytoxan, VP16. Loss of memory, loss of language. Losses, pneumocystis, carinii, pneumonia, bactrim. Foamless, unmitigated sea, without sea. Delirium, whip marks of petechiae, multiple blisters of herpes zoster. And how are you doing today? I am doing. One afternoon, say the sun came out. Moss took on greenishness. Leaves fell, the market opened, a loaf of bread, a sparrow, a bony dog wandered back, sniffing a lath. It might be possible to take up a pencil, unwritten stanzas taken up and touched, beautiful, terrible sentences unuttered. The sea, unrelenting, wave, gray, the sea, flotsam without islands, broken crates, block after block, the same house, the mall, no cathedral, no hobo jungle, the same women and men, they long to drink, hayfields, no without dog or semicolon or village square, without monkey or lily, without garlic. Uh, this is this is a poem I have never attempted to memorize, but I will say I, I, uh, I always remember that last uh, abstention, that last excision without garlic, which is abrupt, but I think affectingly so. And so as not to follow in the batty footsteps of Alyssa Gabbert, I will not attempt to interpret that for you beyond what I've already said. I just like it. That was Without by Donald Hall, and this is Slee Ricketts. Thank you so much for listening. You can, as always, reach me at sleericketts at gmail.com. In weeks to come, I am probably going to keep worrying at this question of coherence and incoherence, but there's going to be some other stuff mixed in probably next week and maybe the week after. Uh, thank you again. Sorry this one's a little bit of a shit show. I did want to put something out, but... It is uh, late, 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 and I'm very tired. With any luck, I will be speaking to you again very soon. Until then. <laughs>